It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. If you're new to the Barbell Medicine Podcast series, welcome. Happy to have you. If you're a returning listener, you've been with us from the beginning or sometime before today, welcome back. Happy to be sharing this time with you. This is episode 162. This is a what's new in modern medicine and strength and conditioning. We're going to review some papers that Dr. Baraki and I have been kicking back and forth. That's, this is what we do. We text each other like, yo, about to hit a PR. What what do? Or like, hey, check out this paper or podcast. <laughs> so we're going to get into that. This is effectively our the information that we share back and forth. That's going to be fun. Also going to talk a little bit about training, what's been going on in both of our training recently, and then some of the new products we've had. But first, I got to introduce you guys to the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki, back on the podcast. What's going on, man? Hey man, happy to be here. We're just gonna chit chat today, I guess. No, 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 uh, you know, specific topic we're gonna dive way deep into, but a potpourri of things for people. A potpourri, I like that. Uh, <laughs> should we call you Doctor Seven Forty Five? You are welcome to do that if you'd like. <laughs> should we Should we call you Doctor Three Thirty Seven and a Half or Doctor Seven Forty Five? I think Seven Forty Five is that a is that a like an area code for some place? Just reminds me of uh, you know Mister Worldwide. So Mister Worldwide, Mister Three Hundred Five, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyway, if um, you haven't seen on Instagram, you're not on Instagram or whatever, Dr. B just hit a monster PR, 745. Is that a 25-pound PR? Uh, no, I pulled 730 a couple months back. Oh, um, yeah, that's right. So, yeah, so this was this was 15. a 15-pound jump, which is at that weight range effectively a, a chip, I guess you could say. Yeah, it's, it's uh, a, in terms of percentage. But it, it was a big milestone. I um, was pretty blown away that it happened again, even though it seems like a relatively small increment on the prior, I'm definitely reaching levels now that far and away were never in my mind, even as far as like somewhat recently as like, Oh, I probably, you know, I might not get that far or something, but here we are. And so I was, I was joking with a friend yesterday that like, you know, you hit that and then you start to, your mind starts to rationalize all kinds of stuff. And you're like, Oh, you know, like eight plates aside is only 765. And then from there, 350 kilos is only 770. And you may as well pull yeah. 800. So yeah. 365. We just, we, just, we just keep tricking ourselves to keep going. <laughs> the thing with 365 kilos. So you're thinking about like, what could you do at a meet, right? Like what yeah. could you actively call for at a meet? You can't call for 800 even because yeah. everybody <laughs> uses kilos. So you, you got to put 365 on the bar, but it's 804. Yeah. So then you're like, all right, I'll go 362. But 362 is 799.4. And you're like, no, like how do I? Because if you pull 799 and then, you know, you say that you pulled 800, somebody somewhere is going to be like, well, actually it was 799. So just yeah, FYI. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Uh, yeah. You, you were able to do so without deadlifting anything for work sets heavier than like 520 pounds. Yeah. I mean, I think for the, there's, there's a few notes that I, that I put up that I think people might find interesting in terms of this training approach that I have, I guess, come across that seems to be working well, that I seem to be responding well to in general is I'm pulling in general twice a week, one session sumo, one session conventional, both of them involve a moderately heavy top single, like a single at a eight RPE ish plus or minus a little bit then I take a pretty substantial amount off the bar and then I'm pulling sets of three or four. Um, and those sets of three or four are probably in the about 68 to 72% of the E1RM for that particular day. And it's anywhere from like four to five sets of that, trying to get like maximal volitional bar speed on all of those things. And, um, 
obviously I seem to be responding well to that. I'm doing that plus some other supplemental accessory stuff as far as like lat pull downs, rows, cable, cable rows, um, uh, RDLs that are not particularly heavy either. Um, and so the other thing is I'm not forcing any weight increases. I'm not forcing any timelines. I'm just taking whatever's there on a given day. Some days are heavier, some days are lighter, but in general, the general trend over time has been creeping up and up and up. So I will take it. Um, may work for you, may not work for you. There are no guarantees implied or <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> yeah, but it's just right, been yeah. an interesting observation, interesting trends and uh, yeah, reaching, reaching levels that now I'm like, okay, I guess this is, uh, this is pretty strong. <laughs> yeah. 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 Pretty strong. And then we see, you know, uh, what's his name? Bilbo, uh, hack <laughs> John hack deadlift, you know, eight ninety something or whatever it was. Yeah. Just, you just don't watch built different just, as they say <laughs> built differently. That's right. But, uh, yeah. So th- that training approach has, uh, colored, are low fatigue templates. This is a new template that we just came out with. Basically, the latest in what we feel like is evidence-based information towards uh, strength training, strength maximal strength development, in addition to our like kind of personal experience and professional experience coaching others. Effectively, we've morphed uh, over the last shoot, man, I don't know, eight years-ish towards this approach. I think eight to 10 years ago, most of our work was at the RP nine level, just across the board. You would do a set at nine. You might take a little bit of weight off, but the next set would be pretty close. RP nine basically means you got one rep left in the tank. It is just very, very much closer to failure. And it wasn't really lower volume either. It was still like a pretty good chunk of volume. It just, all of it was pretty close to failure. And it's not that we saw no results from that. We still got stronger, you know, yeah, and we're able to exactly. progress. Yep. But what's happened, and I, and I think this really started taking place about, oh, I don't know, four or five years ago. We're like, well, maybe we'll do this top single. That's like our practice for the day, skill practice for the day, informs like, or top set, we'll say. It kind of gives you, all right, here's how well you're performing for the day to color. Like, hey, how heavy should your actual, you know, back offsets or volume sets be? And then we would do stuff much lighter where, the, where we're further away from failure. And that sometimes would be rele- uh, relegated to just the priority lift, so squat, bench, deadlift. And then it kind of bled over into some of the supplemental work, right? And it's like, it, it, so it's been a gradual change, but we've been doing this for for a while. Well, I remember, I remember, I remember when we were getting started, and some of the old legacy kind of templates. Even if people still use any of those, there are some of them, and 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 that um, those older products that might, like you said, on the, on the competition lifts, it'll be like, yeah, hit a top single at eight and then, uh, pull 20 or 25% off the bar and do five sets of five. That would have been a pretty common kind of setup. Um, and then, yeah, I, I remember a couple of years ago at some point I was like, you know, I've actually just started doing that same thing on my supplementals too, instead of working up to like four at nine and, and just doing one back re- set, repeats yeah. at like 5% off or something like that. Um, I mean, I think that it has been a lot of experimentation and trial and error, which is something that's worth commenting on. I mean, I, I think that a lot of folks who may not be as uh, either coaches themselves might not work with a broad swath of different people or who pay attention to like the strength and conditioning literature might think that there's a lot more predictability to all of this when you deliver a particular training program to a particular individual. 
And that is definitively not the case. I mean, so much of this is kind of like educated guessing and then seeing what an individual responds to. Even when you look at the research evidence on some of this stuff we're talking about, fortunately, more of the research nowadays is showing individual subject level data instead of just an average, like a mean response pre and post training. And so when you show the... (laughs) That's a cat. Yeah. When you show individual subject level data in these studies, it ends up showing, yeah, some people are hyper responders. Some people don't respond quite as well. Some people are kind of in between. But the utility of it is it is is if it seems to be if you know reasonably effective or very effective on average, it gives you a reasonable kind of educated guess starting point to work with people on and then say, hey, based on how you do, we can get some subjective feedback, we can get some objective feedback based on your performance. And I've had some clients who do great with it. I've had some clients who are like, hey, I want to go even further from failure. And then some who are like, you know, I feel like I need more of that, you know, harder you know, closer to failure stuff or more of that exposure to stuff in the 80% range. And that's just something you figure out on the back end. It's not necessarily something that can be predicted. So obviously we get a lot of questions about like, hey, how do you program or is there going to be a course or something? It's like, sure, we can like deliver some of this information of how we think about it. But at the same time, I think it's worth being like pretty clear that a lot of this stuff is educated guesses with people seeing how you respond and then making these kind of iterative changes as you go over time to find out how you respond. That's why like, hey, I'm like over a decade into this training thing. And here I am in the past year trying this approach, you know, more in a more, you know, dedicated fashion and and seeing this this response that we're observing and are interested in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and as you said in your story, there are a lot of different ways to get strong. (laughs) And um, one of the benefits of the low fatigue template and that style of approach is that I, I do think you actually reduce the risk of people being non-responders only because the vol- training volume ends up being so high. So when you actually look at the literature on non-responders, so people who don't get better or don't get that much better, basically as volume goes up, the risk of yep. ha- seeing non-responders goes down. doesn't mm-hmm. mean it's the best program or it's the program su- what, you know, best suited for you, but expect most people to make some progress on their hair. And if you really take to this type of programming, man, low fatigue, templates, you're going to be off to the races. So you get four templates. They're all different. Um, two of them, we, we broadly classified as like low interest at fatigue, low ISF. Those ones tend to have heavier top sets and then much lighter back off sets. Whereas the medium interest at fatigue stuff is mostly just sets at seven. So the proximity to failure in both is still relatively high. You're far away from failure. Just the average intensity tends to be higher on the medium ISF template. Um, and so the average, you know, you're, you are far away from failure, but not as far maybe as the other one. And so we included both because we expect people to respond differently to different approaches. There are a bunch of different ways that you can do this, right? But um, those are the two ways that we kind of chose to tackle this problem. Uh, and also included with the templates are this, it's an 80 page ebook on like how to program. Is it the definitive text on how to program for all goals and exercise in general? No, yeah. that is in the works and on some level, but that's not 80 pages. That's, you know, and even that will be uh, incomplete in some fashion and will be wrong probably within a, a year or two of its publication. But I mean, I do think that the the key points are there are some general principles that we can glean from um, you know, experience and the research literature and stuff like that. And then a lot of it is, you know, educated, intelligent experimentation. So if you want to try one of these things, see how you do, 
And then, of course, we end up getting a lot of questions from people who are like, hey, can I try this? And it's like, sure, you know, yeah. what you want. You can try it and see see how you do with it. And even other people, you know, you've had like our friends, the the data-driven strength guys on the podcast and talk to them about this topic at, at some length. And there are certain things about this that they, I'm sure, do differently and and other people will do even even more differently. And, and some people will insist that, hey, you have to go hard and heavy all the time. And if you're not grinding, you're not trying. And maybe they get some people strong that way too. So I think that it's, you know, part of the, fun of this process is, uh, you know, trying these, these things and worrying less about things being optimal from the, from the very beginning or really ever in your training is probably mm-hmm. a good thing to, to not worry so much about, Hey, what's optimal because that's like an unattainable thing. It's not realistic. You just need to train. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and then, yeah, I think it's important to use, you know, feedback, both objective and subjective. So every few weeks, am I, am I, generating the adaptations that I want to in a demonstrable way at some time interval two every two weeks, three weeks is your E1 RM, for example, going up, are you able to handle more weight? Are you able to use less rest between sets? Are you able to do more reps? Are you able to use a faster pace? And if not, you know, every we'll say two to four weeks for, for strength and cardio and maybe a little bit longer for hypertrophy, then the program probably needs some adjustment as far as where you go to adjust. Well, the world is your oyster. And that's what this book kind of covers. Like here, here are the big variables. Here's how you would adjust them differently. Here's how you would troubleshoot programming. And so I think if you were looking for like, particularly for strength development, this, this text is what I want to be out there. Um, because it's what I would say. Yeah. I do think that last part is worth emphasizing because, you know, I'm sure there are a fair number of folks who don't necessarily read the manual because, hey, there's a lot of products that I might buy out there and I don't necessarily read the manual when I go to put it together or something like that. But if you, for some reason, maybe don't respond as well as you'd like to it, there is this is something that's uh, that you uh, uh, wrote up and added that's new and different to this is this troubleshooting section of like, hey, if this, you know, consider trying this, if that, consider trying that, which was probably going to be helpful for some folks. Sure. Yeah. Uh, cool. All right. So that's one template we came out with. And the second one was a super total template. We combined weightlifting and powerlifting. I've had the opportunity to coach a number of people who have competed in both disciplines, like not back to back necessarily, like at a super total meet, but like, okay, three weeks after my powerlifting meet, I got an Olympic weightlifting meet or vice versa, or at least training for both at similar periods of time. And both have done, uh, uh the last, the most, the two most recent people have done quite well um winning both winning both divisions so that's pretty neat um austin i think i don't know that who would win in a contest between you and i as far as like well either who who would do who would do better in olympic weightlifting meet or who has done more (laughs) olympic weightlifting i think because of my crossfit the crossfit uh experiment i by default like have done more olympic weightlifting stuff but i i do not claim to be like the world's best Olympic weightlifter or a world's best Olympic weightlifting coach. I am familiar with enough material on like the programming, the methodology, technique, technique development, all that sort of stuff to, I feel very comfortable programming Olympic weightlifting and coaching it. But as far as demonstrating like, and here's how you would do an, you know, a squat jerk optimally. I'm like, well, I don't know that you even need to be able to do that to, to be honest, to be a good coach, but like, yeah, I'm not the guy that you need for your demo videos. Yeah. Um, what's your, what, what are your best lifts for Olympic weightlifting? Yeah, I would have dabbled in these intermittently throughout the first couple of years of my training. Um, I probably trained cleans in a little bit more dedicated fashion than snatches. And I dabbled in CrossFit, I think for like three months, which is much mm-hmm. shorter than your experiment. I did three months and knew that I'd had enough when I yeah. felt my squat 
tanking. <laughs> I was yeah, like, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm good here. So um, I think my best clean is in the range of like 300 to 315 range. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't actually remember what my best jerk is. I think it's probably in the mid to upper 200, somewhere in that range. Trained, that's probably the least trained was the jerk. Um, similar to my overhead press is very undertrained. And then snatches, um, also probably uh, maybe like around, uh, I don't know, a hundred or something like that kilos, but yeah. not a whole lot more than that. <laughs> yeah. I think my best snatch was 105 and my best clean I had racked and stood up with 165. So 363, but my best clean and jerk was only like, I don't even know if I, if I ever broke 140. I know I did 140, yeah. but like, but my best behind the neck jerk was 180. That's and I know this because I tried, <laughs> well, I tried to behind the neck jerk 185. I mean, it, at least a dozen times. Cause I just wanted to be like 405, even though it was 407. Yeah. Um, so yeah, not okay. a, not a super great Olympic weightlifter by people who actually do this, you know, for sport. But, um, I've coached the, the lifts for a long time. And again, the pr- very familiar with the programming methodology, belief systems that are out there, different development systems. So if you're trying to train weightlifting, if you're weightlifting curious, or you're trying to train for weightlifting and you're also want to train for powerlifting, well, you're basically making two compromises in your training simultaneously. You're like, I'm going to dedicate a decent amount of time to Olympic weightlifting and powerlifting. That doesn't leave a lot of room for other things. So people are like, can I combine that with like this MMA development program? I'm like, no, probably not. Because that, I mean, you're, you're just getting spread too thin. So these two goals with some overlap, but some disparities, probably the most that I would like to do at a single time. Um, but yeah, there's conditioning in there too. There's some higher rep work to make sure you get your, your pump on. Um, but yeah, just not a lot of room for like for fluff. So that template we came out with and then the power building template, power building three. Um, I mean, just looking historically at our template sales, people love the power building templates. It's like, get big, get strong. Yes. That's what I want. Um, but I should say that the power building template is a compromise too. You're compromising automatically by saying, all right, I want to do the power lifts squat, bench, deadlift. That's the power portion of the power building template. And then instead of it just being fully strength, you know, dedicated towards maximal strength development, there's hypertrophy, like straight up bodybuilding type stuff, or very more geared towards uh, bodybuilding or prioritizing hypertrophy over maximal strength development. So you're not prioritizing one or the other, you're, you're prioritizing both. And there's some, there's some compromise there. Um, I think where people get led astray when they're looking at this relationship between strength development and muscle cross-sectional area, muscle size, muscle hypertrophy, there is overlap between strength development and hypertrophy and, and, and like exercise protocols. So exercises, sets, rep schemes, intensity, whatever that will generate hypertrophy. There's overlap, right? It's like a Venn diagram in the middle, you know, is probably that four to six, four to eight, maybe rep range, you know, if we're still talk, just focusing on maximal strength development, probably closer to four to six rep range within a couple reps of failure, uh, you know, four reps in reserve or less that generates maximal strength development on some level and hypertrophy on some level. And as you go further, either way, away, away from that kind of overlap, you're prioritizing either maximal strength development only, uh, or primarily, you know, uh, or hypertrophy primarily. And again, it doesn't mean there's no transference. It just, it gets further away. Right. So when people are like, should I do a hypertrophy block, a hypertrophy focused block to get stronger? It's like, well, what do you mean by that? 
do you mean like you're still going to do the strength lifts and the, you know, traditional strength training intensity ranges, uh, and rep scheme ranges and this, that, the other, or do you mean like everything's 12s, you know, or tens and it, cause if it's the latter, I don't think that's the best way to get strong. If it's the former, that's a fine way to do like a non-specific training block, you know, uh, uh, but, and, and still like make a strength progress overall, uh, long-term. But as far as like doing a straight up bodybuilding block, because you're trying to get as strong as humanly possible, like, what do you, what do you think about that? Yeah. I think that when the research has looked at factors that are most tightly correlated with or predictive of, uh, strength performance, particularly in more trained lifters, some of the strongest, tightest relationships that we see are for muscle size, muscle cross-sectional area, um, and the relationship between that and people's strength performance. And so that has kind of become uh, extrapolated, or people will take that to say, I should do a hypertrophy block before I do a strength block, with big air quotes around these terms. Again, like whatever is meant by these things. Typically, what I think is meant by a hypertrophy block is, as you were saying, like, almost all or effectively all higher rep stuff, maybe a bit less specific towards the competition movements with the thinking that, Hey, I'm going to just put on a slabs of muscle in this, you know, eight to 12 week quote unquote hypertrophy block. And then when I go into my strength block, which is going to be maybe more specific to the competition lifts, maybe have lower rep ranges, more exposure to singles, doubles, triples, et cetera, that the added muscle that I have gained will then, you know, I'll have that added cross-sectional area that can then contribute to force production. And it's like a seemingly plausible, like reasonably compelling theory. Um, the issue is that when this has been studied, where they, you know, take individuals and sequence them either towards the hypertrophy, quote unquote, followed by strength or strength followed by hypertrophy, uh, you see really not that impressive of differences in people's outcomes. And I think, you know, this is, part of the broader like periodization literature as a whole. And, and of course, I still do agree that like building muscle size, muscle mass is going to be quite important for people who want to get strong. There's no way around that. But I just think it's a much longer term process. It's not something like you are just straight up not putting on slabs of muscle in like eight to 12 weeks of quote unquote hypertrophy training. And at the same time, during that eight to 12 weeks of not doing singles, doubles, triples, you're just getting worse at like the skill of performing those, you know, high force production efforts and sets and stuff like that. So I think that there is not a great argument for doing, you know, exclusive, if, if your ultimate goals are like top end force production, uh, I don't know that you're going to get better outcomes by doing straight up dedicated phases where you are completely taking time away from that goal task. Rather, I think having a, a blend is more intelligent. And really, that's like even what my own programming for the past, I, I would say that over my training career, I've never done like a straight up all high rep, all hypertrophy kind of thing. Although if somebody wanted to do it just for like psychological reasons, they want to break, they are tired of, you know, the, the higher weight, lower rep stuff. Um, whatever the case is that those are perfectly valid reasons to do it. But I, I don't know that you're going to get better strength results by, by doing that necessarily. What my training has looked like, say for the past year plus has involved pretty constant regular exposure to top either singles or doubles or triples. Um, and then some of that specific work. And then, yeah, there's some accessory stuff like my lat pull downs and cable rows and dumbbell stuff. Yeah. That's in like the 10, 12, even 15 rep range on some of those movements. And I'm not under the impression that it's going to put on tons and tons and tons of muscle in a short term. I just recognize that this is like a super long-term process that raised, that raised even some questions where people were like, Hey, you pulled, 
635 weighing 194 pounds back in 2016 and now you're pulling 745 at 195 now like is that a big knock against the idea that muscle mass is relevant because you've you know put all this weight on without gaining a ton of weight and honestly what i what i know actually to be uh, quite, I'm co- quite confident in is looking at myself then and now there's been a fair amount of like recomposition that's happened. Um, how, how I look, how uh, much muscle mass I'm actually have now compared to then is different. And then of course, there are other contributors than just muscle mass to, to strength performance. So I wouldn't use that necessarily to discount that hypothesis either. But um, yeah, those are my thoughts. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think that depending on what the training program looks like, m- muscle mass and muscle strength are, can be artifacts of developing the other thing. So, so what I what I mean by that is a strength program. One artifact of doing a well programmed strength program is you're going to gain muscle mass again because there's overlap there, right? Uh, doing a well programmed hypertrophy focused program, you're going to get stronger in different rep ranges. Yeah, you know, because you're just selecting for the specific strength adaptations in the rep ranges that you train at. And so, just like you said, if you don't do singles, doubles, triples, and your goal is literally like one RM performance, yeah, that those strength specific adaptations decay particularly if that's an extended period of time. Um, yeah. So I, so I think there's like the people who respond well to a given program are likely to get bigger and stronger. And so when you look at like the correlates, it's like, well, yeah, the pr- people who got the strongest, they gained a bunch of muscle mass too. It's like they just responded well to the program. And then the people who didn't respond so well, didn't get much stronger, didn't get gain much muscle mass, like kind of, kind of thing. Cause, cause to me, if you're training all like the major muscle groups, uh, you know, with enough volume and enough intensity and the nutrition situation is on point and your sleep situation is on point and you don't gain muscle. All that's telling me is that the training dose is too high for you to currently like tolerate. And so all, instead of your resources going towards like building more muscle mass or whatever, it's really just going to keeping your head above water. And that's why we see in some studies, depending on how it's measured, lean body mass, you know, tends to start accumulating a few weeks in, not just the first week, because people got to get used to it. You got got to run it in, you know, uh, to to tolerate it. So I don't think I would say that lean body mass has no contribution to strength performance. I just think it's more complex. And then again, the increase in lean body mass seen with people who get stronger to a given program, I think is more artifact rather than proof that like, oh, you have to get bigger. And, And I don't think I would try to get bigger via methods that are less specific or completely non-specific to your actual training goals, including accessory exercise that you can take to failure, like just for muscle mass. That's not wrong. I just don't know that that has like the best transference over it. It doesn't mean the transference is zero either. So, so again, these are all like there's pros and cons to, to different approaches, but the power building template, if you were like, okay, my goals in equal you know, relatively equal sort of amounts are get stronger and gain muscle mass. Like that'd be my de facto kind of template recommendation. Power building three is super interesting because you get to pick all of your own exercises and there's dynamic uh, volume and intensity sort of adjustments based on how you feel, how you're performing that day. So if you're having a day where you're lifting out of your mind, you'll be, you'll actually do more volume at a slightly higher intensity. And on days that you're like not really feeling it, it's going to be a little lower. The idea is to meet you where you're at based on your performance on a given day. And we can use additional tools, additional technology besides just RPE. And so maybe we call this cybernetic periodization. <laughs> <laughs> That's from Mel Sif back in the super training text. He was big, like, he called it cybernetic. He, well, so he called periodization an, uh, an exercise in stress management. But when you go look at all the literature on periodization, there's no like formally agreed upon 
yeah. definition. Uh, in fact, this review article I just like went over found 41 different definitions of periodization uh, and then another 100 plus definitions of periodization where they were just explaining a program. So periodization isn't really a program. It's a way to manage all of the factors going into physical development. But yeah, it's just fascinating that people, you know, how we ended up here talking about periodization. But okay, so those are new offerings, some some ramblings on strength development, weightlifting, muscle mass, that sort of stuff. Now we get to talk about some science because we got we to gotta feed your brain hole. So a few studies we've been sharing back and forth. The first one is really interesting. It's actually not new at all. This is, this is what happens when Austin and I like go down a rabbit hole and try to like answer questions that we have. We end up finding a paper that's like 10 years old or, or, you know, or even in this case more, it's from 2008 where somebody else like addressed, addressed this question and the paper either didn't get picked up in a big way or like the methodology is obscured, you know, something. And we're like, "Ah, we're idiots. People have already thought of this. People have already (laughs) thought of this. Okay. So you've all heard, particularly if you've, listen to the barbell medicine podcast because you're interested in barbells medicine and like however you got here there's some other interest in like health and longevity that being stronger in general reduces your risk of premature all-cause mortality disease development burden of disease all that so- other sort of stuff that's a fancy fancy way of saying that being stronger is health promoting compared to being less strong so the problem with measuring strength is that in the majority of these studies, they use like a hand grip dynamometer, which is uh, just this tool where you measure grip strength, right? Um, other more refined techniques are they use a knee extension, a leg extension test, or they're like, oh, how much force can you use with your quads to extend your legs? Now, that's better than a hand grip test because it actually has is more tightly correlated to tests like the timed up and go that you use for sarcopenia, right? Like get out of your chair and walk or like sit to stand test. Like how, how fast can you do five unassisted sit to stands? Um, but it's still not perfect. Why? Cause there's no upper body metric there. What you would want is a composite score of like that, that accurately depicts total body strength. So anyway, enter this study from Ruiz and colleagues in 2008, the way that they measured strength, was they measured a one rep max and no shit one rep max bench press. <laughs> They're like, cool. yeah, then we just added five pounds each time until they stopped, until they couldn't do it anymore after five minute <laughs> rest periods. Uh, I was like, I mean, all right, seems legit. And then a one rep max leg press. Now I like the leg press in this case, because if people hadn't squatted before, there'd be too much of a skill component there. And I sure. wouldn't feel great that it like accurately measures their leg strength. So I'm fine with leg press. Bench press seems less skill oriented. So I'm fine with the bench press too. But if they said they did a machine, like a hammer bench, chest, chest press kind of thing. Yeah. That would have been fine too. Still yep. better than a hand grip, still better than a leg strength, leg extension. They did this in about 9,000 dudes between ages 20 and 82. They did this in the late eighties. They measured all the stuff in the late eighties. They also measured body composition. They measured blood pressure. Although they measured blood pressure, they did it by auscultation. So I'm like, I wonder how accurate these blood pressure. <laughs> the, uh, and they measured a bunch of other stuff, lipids, fasting blood sugar, et cetera. In any case, they collected all this data from like 85 to 89 and then followed these people for an average of 20 years and saw just like, hey, what happened? Was it premature death? Was Did they develop heart disease, diabetes, cancer? You know, did they die from these things? And then they basically broke it down into thirds, low strength, which was like the reference, like, hey, compared to people with low strength, how did these stronger people do? 
a medium level of strength and a high level of strength. So the upper tertile or upper third. And uh, so what we've been looking for this whole time is like, how strong do you need to get for health? I mean, that's what we've been searching for. And we can't really say like a hand grip test, like, oh, you got to get to... Well, 50 yeah, cause, PSI. Cause part of the, part of the issue is that the hand grip strength is, is really only like valid as a test when, um, you're just like taking all comers and having them squeeze the thing. It's not like the idea would be that, oh, if you go and squeeze your, you know, train your hand grip to reach these metrics. And after knowing this, that suddenly you're going to be reducing your risk of death in that situation. Although to be fair, you would probably still actually see some uh, blood pressure reduction from people doing that kind of exercise. Yes, yeah, you do. That's <laughs> but, a study but, on that. But outside of that, um, you know, you're not going to be getting the same kind of general effects, um, as, as you would, uh, uh, from, you know, uh, general strength training. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, they took these 9,000 people, followed them for about 20 years and they found as predicted that those in the upper tertile, the upper third of strength as measured by this composite score of their one RM leg press and bench press, uh, they had the lowest all-cause mortality, heart disease generation, death from heart disease, uh, cancer risks, like of getting it, and then risk of death from cancer. And that persisted in isolation, two, after correcting for like age, body weight, smoking status, previous medical history, and then three, after adjusting for cardiorespiratory fitness, which they measured on a treadmill. So like, and it's not that the relationship got super, super weak. It like, it, the hazard ratios are impressive. Um it, it looked at a bit to me, it looked like, yes, being stronger, getting to that upper tertile probably has a, it's a, a unique set of benefits, but even getting to the middle range, substantial benefits there too. Right. So in any case, so how strong do you need to be? Well, unfortunately there's not individual level data here, but the average one RM leg press was 150 kilos uh, for these folks, which is about 1.9 times body weight. Now again, these are all guys, right? And then for bench press on average, it was like 80 something kilos, 82 or 83 kilos, which is 1.1 times body weight. Um, so like, all right, you need to bench body weight and like leg press almost twice body weight. That's the average. It's probably lower than that, but it is a number that is in the evidence that I wouldn't feel terribly uncomfortable having people shoot towards, sure. um, rather than just like, Hey, it doesn't matter how strong you get at all. That's, it's just not, that's probably not the case. Even though participating in exercise, despite like, even if you don't gain strength has its own health benefits. I think if we're yeah. trying to maximize benefit, you're going to have to get a little stronger, how much sure. stronger depends on where you started and you know, whatever. But so now and those were the, the numbers, those were the numbers for the upper tertile. You said the upper, ter the average okay. numbers for the upper tertile. So okay, they didn't yeah, like yeah. publish like cutoff points. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. it actually is 120 kilos, but yeah. So I think those are reasonable, like targets um for those exercises i just think it this is like the best data we've ever come across with respect to like how strong is strong enough it look if you're squatting over body weight like on the bar and you're bench pressing close anywhere close to body weight i, I think that you're you're in that upper tertile for strength so at that yeah, point probably. it's like for health it's like do i need to be stronger i'm like mm, probably not i'd probably put my resources if i had to like pick elsewhere towards body composition you know improving that uh making sure that you're up to date on all of your vaccinations making sure you're up to date on your age appropriate screenings making sure that you have solid interpersonal relationships you're getting enough quality you know quantity and quality of sleep all these sorts of like you know health promoting dietary pattern all of those yeah. things would probably take precedent over like 
yeah, but I got to squat double body weight now. It's like, mm. yeah, yeah. We have like way overshot the health stuff from here. It's just, uh, uh, uh for fun and like self punishment. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, cool study. I'll link that in the description below. I'm talking about that in some detail in this latest programming text, because that is a question people ask, like how strong is strong enough for health? How much muscle mass is enough for health? How much cardiorespiratory fitness is enough for health? And so like, do you think it would be fair to say that, um, in response to that question, you could generalize and say for people, for general population folks who are outside of this lifting bubble that we're in, it's probably more than you think. And for people who are in this lifting bubble, it's probably less than you think. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. For yeah. strength, for strength yes. and muscle mass. Yeah, that's what but I, for cardiorespiratory yeah. fitness, it's probably reversed. Like yeah. if you're in the strength, <laughs> and it, it, if you're in the strength <laughs> conditioning world, you're, you're probably under the impression that just lifting gets you, you know, all the way there which is not the case, right? It, you know, hyper responders to exercise, particularly those who have like an above average response in cardiovascular fitness improvement from resistance training may have less to go, but you're not there yet. Yeah. And the lay public's like, oh, you need to run a marathon. (laughs) Yeah. And we're like, okay, well, let's meet in the middle. Let's meet in the middle. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, All right. Other study that I've been sharing. Well, we've been kind of rapping about back and forth. This is from Kevin Hall. If you don't know who Kevin Hall is, like pause the podcast, get on the Google machine, search Kevin Hall metabolism, Kevin Hall weight loss, Kevin Hall. Like what he's the guy to go to for like very well-controlled dietary studies. So metabolic ward studies where they admit people to a clinical research facility and investigate, hey, what's the difference between low carb and high carb? What's the difference between ultra processed and non-processed foods? All sorts of stuff. So in any case, he did a post hoc, so after the fact review of all this bigger, biggest loser data that has been collected. So biggest loser you, for our TV show for people. Is it, who yes, if you don't know, if you're states, too so. young, if you're <laughs> yes, if you're outside the states or you're you know one of our younger listeners, you might not remember the Biggest Loser. Uh, so what happened was they they took all these individuals with obesity, very very significant obesity. You know, these people generally had hundreds of pounds to lose and they put them in a ranch just outside of LA and made them exercise or, or depending on how you look at it, gave them the opportunity to exercise for six, seven, eight hours plus a day and put them on a very low calorie diet. And they did this for, you know, eight weeks, 10 weeks. And these people lost a ton of weight. And anyway, so this study, uh, the original study basically looked at these people years after the biggest loser show had ended and like, Hey, how much weight did people regain if they did? How many people like successfully kept the weight off? What were the correlates? What happened to their metabolism? So the original study found that basically the people who lost the most weight and kept the most weight off had the lowest resting metabolic rates compared to their body weight, meaning that a substantial amount of metabolic adaptation occurred. Now, metabolic adaptation is a synonym for adaptive thermogenesis, and both of these terms get thrown around kind of uh, without a good definition. So here's the definition. Metabolic adaptation and adaptive thermogenesis, again, they mean the same thing, is basically a change in your metabolic rate out of proportion to the change in weight. So as you lose weight, your metabolic rate goes down. Why? There's less tissue to to fuel. But if that happens out of proportion, so your metabolic rate goes down more, for example, than the amount of weight you lost, that's metabolic adaptation. Effectively, something is occurring to lower your metabolic rate uh, excessively. And that has potentially some effects on weight regain, weight maintenance, et cetera. 
So in any case, the original biggest weight loss, uh, biggest loser weight loss data and metabolic uh, rate data suggested that those who lost the most weight and kept it off had the lowest resting metabolic rates and the highest amount of metabolic adaptation, which was interesting because the whole study, like leading up to that conclusion was like, wow, they had a ton of metabolic adaptation that they couldn't like overcome. And this is bad. That's the idea that it's bad because they're going to gain more weight back because their metabolic rate's lower. Well, it turns out they just had the lowest, they had the most, uh, those who had the most amount of adaptation had the most amount of weight loss. And so Kevin Hall re-reviewed this data and his thing was it probably had more to do with the amount of physical activity that they did on the ranch and subsequent to that. So effectively, the people who lost the most amount of weight continued to do a substantial amount of exercise. And so that the, the way that the body compensated for that exercise was to maintain a lower metabolic rate. Because again, as we discussed with Dr. Ponzer on the podcast, he's the author of the book Burn, and he, he kind of brought this idea of the constrained energy expenditure model to light. As you increase energy expenditure from exercise, your body will find ways to compensate by lowering other areas of energy expenditure. And some of this may be like health promoting because you have less energy to dedicate to inflammatory processes, for example, maybe that's beneficial. Uh, but in any case, so Kevin Hall was like, yeah, these people had the biggest amount of metabolic adaptation, but the most amount of weight loss. That, I don't know that it's a bad thing. It's an adaptive thing, it seems like, because they just stayed more active than the other folks and did not start eating a substantial amount more. Because if they did, you would see a reversal of that metabolic rate as they gained weight. So anyway, pretty cool study. Link that in the description below. Austin, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, su super interesting. And I think worth pointing out on the back end of that, not directly related to that particular study, but we know that in individuals who successfully lose a fair amount of weight, that um, uh, those who are able to maintain the highest amounts of physical activity beyond that, um, actually, that is a very protective you know, strategy against weight regain. And so this is important to point out because people will frequently, even in the aftermath of that podcast with uh, with Dr. Ponzer say, oh, exercise doesn't help for weight loss. And yeah. that's not an accurate statement to say No, to the extent that it nope. helps during the initial weight loss phase. It may not be helping in the ways that you think, or it may help less than you think. But very importantly, it does have a, a it has a role in, again, ways that are other than what you might think in terms of just pure uh, kind of the inverse out kind of, um, idea of just spending more calories on, on exercise, but more importantly, on the back end of this whole process, once the weight loss has taken place, preventing weight regain becomes a, a pretty high priority or becomes, you know, relatively important for, for maintaining these, uh, long-term health, uh, improvements that you get through that process and maintaining very high amounts of physical activity is one of the best ways to mitigate that risk of weight regain. Yep. And in addition to improving body composition, independent of weight changes and another, and just a whole host of other weight Good independent exercise. health benefits. Yeah. Yes. People are like, well, what about weight loss? I'm like, what about the 150 other things that exercise does? Yeah. Yeah. Still good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on that same topic, we can skip ahead to this citations needed podcast. Now you sent me this thing. I did listen to, I didn't listen to all of it. I'm a hundred, I'm being hundred percent honest, mainly because uh, it's quite lengthy. And then also like some of the stuff discussed i was just kind of like eh, all right well i get the gist i get what you're saying i've got what i needed from this podcast but i, I cannot continue on you want to give people the 
BBM political disclaimer. Yeah, and right. a synopsis. <laughs> so that was their podcast. This is a different podcast. The title is Citations Needed. It was uh, episode 149. And the title was How Fatness Became a Cheap Joke and Proxy for Moral Deficiency in Pop Culture. And this is a topic that we've talked a little bit about recently. And so obviously that title kind of got my attention. And to be clear to everyone who chooses to go listen to it, this podcast uh, has a pretty substantial political slant to it. They are very far firm left, American left, I, I should say, which is different than European left. But um, is that so, true? So keep that in mind. Yes, uh, keep that in oh. mind when you're <laughs> when you're when you're listening. It's mainly in terms of degree. But uh, yeah, I see. Yes. Anyway, so they go through. There is some value, and there are some things that are inaccurate. But it is worth at least learning about kind of the history of how uh, body fatness, how obesity has been viewed um, in, from a kind of sociological perspective, how people have viewed it um, throughout history, because it has led to a lot of the kind of moralizing around body weight, body composition, body size that has turned into a major kind of barrier to adequately treating obesity as a disease um, in order to improve people's health trajectory uh, over time. And so, you know, when we, from the medical perspective, from, from where we sit and we're trying to improve people's health status, their health span, their longevity, reduce the risk of complications from carrying excess body fat, um, you know, there's such a strong stigma against obesity and carrying excess body fat, even among healthcare professionals, but at least as much, if not more in, in general society. And so when it comes to treating it as a disease, when we say, hey, you know, you have high blood pressure, nobody bats an eye when they say, yeah, there's some lifestyle stuff you can do. But, you know, if you need blood pressure medicine, just take it and, you you know, might prevent you from having a stroke. Uh, when it comes to treating obesity as a disease where we say, yeah, there's some lifestyle things that you can do. And then there's also some medications that can at this point now, 2021, quite potently impact this disease process. Um there is that is viewed as a crutch. It is viewed as lazy. It is viewed as like the easy way out or, or, or a bunch of other things, which really fails to recognize how obesity happens. Um, it's still in society very prevalently viewed as just a simple active, you know, conscious decision that people make in order to, you know, take in more calories than they expend and that it would just be, it would be just as easy for them to not do that. And this often comes from the perspective of people who, maybe throughout their life have, for the most part, not had a ton of trouble with this. They've either been lean their whole lives, or if they did develop excess body fat, um, their body, their regulation system, um, their neurohormonal system, the, the the nervous system and the hormones that play a role in this have have maybe set them up, their genetic lot has, has set them up to where they're actually able to uh, uh, go on a calorie restricted diet and stick to it and not struggle with cravings and, and having, you know, extreme hunger that they have to fight through all the time and, and other things. And so, you know, this is something that we're trying to shift. You've probably heard us on this podcast and some of our Q and A's trying to shift the, the messaging on this, shift the needle on this in order to make it less stigmatizing and make it uh, more easily accessible for people to um, access, uh, you know, appropriate treatment for this issue, which we view as a disease process that has health complications, just like many others, um, and is becoming increasingly treatable in more and more convenient ways, right? So people historically may have said, oh, you have to diet and exercise as hard as you can. And if you're not able to lose weight, you're just not trying hard enough, try harder, which is really an oversimplification and just incorrect um, in terms of, you know, how people's genetics and then how that relates to the surrounding environment sets people up for this. 
And then at the other extreme, there was uh, what was previously called bariatric surgery, what's now started to become more known as either just straight weight loss surgery or, or metabolic surgery, things like gastric bypass, Roux-en-Y procedures, sleeve gastrectomies, things like that, which is pretty invasive. And as a result of being quite invasive in that it involves abdominal surgery, has a higher rate of you know complications and things like that, um, which obviously everyone does their best to try to avoid, but there's going to be some inherent complication rate to a medical intervention. Um, and, but that of course did have the most significant effects on body weight, body fatness and risk of of, um, obesity related complications. In fact, you know, pretty good data as far as reducing the risk of death long-term, um, when individuals who are appropriately selected for this kind of surgery undergo it could lose 20%, 25%, 30 plus percent of, of body weight, um, depending on the cohort that you look at, which is pretty substantial. Um, the medications kind of fall in between this lifestyle centric approach and surgical, um, or at least historically have, have been not especially effective. So you could think, you know, the best data on average, um, for lifestyle focused interventions, you'd get anywhere from like zero to 5% weight loss on average in most of the lifestyle focused studies, which may not even be persistent long-term. Um, whereas the surgical intervention could get you again, substantial 25% plus weight loss that would persist, at least to some extent, over time. The medications, we're having increasing meds that are being discovered, novel kind of pathways that are being targeted. Um, Overwhelmingly, these pathways that these medications um, affect involve the um, kind of regulation of appetite and satiety, satiety referring to like feelings of fullness. Um, And so when we have these medications that can influence these pathways affecting satiety um, and kind of these reward pathways and things like that in our in our brains, um, we sure enough, we take people who previously may have had obesity for a long time, may have struggled to lose weight through lifestyle measures alone, people who society may has, have viewed as being lazy or morally inferior, as was discussed throughout the history in the original podcast that we, we referenced here. And suddenly you put them on this medicine And the weirdest thing happens. Suddenly they become moral, upstanding, righteous individuals who are able to try hard and lose weight. And of course, that's a joke in that these medicines do nothing to alter your moral character. Rather, they target these, uh, you know, appetite satiety mechanisms in the brain. And we see now 10, 15 percent, 20 percent plus uh, weight loss in certain individuals who are using these medications. The meds, as we advance and discover new ones, are actually approaching the effectiveness of surgical treatments. And so some of the most potent ones that we've seen come out more recently, one is called semaglutide, um, which is one that I have some experience prescribing um, to some patients with actually great success among many of them. Um, That one has uh, shown evidence more often in the like 15 to 20% weight loss range that's been sustained as long as patients obviously stay on it because it's affecting these pathways that are oftentimes genetically influenced and then also influenced by the surrounding environment. Um, and the other agents that have been getting studied that I expect will become, you know, widely available. One is called terzepatide. Um, this, uh, hits similar, but slightly different pathways to, uh, semaglutide. And then another one called cagrolintide, which is something called an amylin analog. And this also affects satiety in the brain and drugs that affect this pathway have actually been around for quite a long time. There's one, that um, healthcare professionals may recognize called Pramlantide, which was approved in 2005 for use in diabetes, even though it has not, I would say, had great uptake for that purpose. But this one seems to have pretty substantial 
uh, you know, rate, uh, effects on appetite, satiety, weight loss. And additionally, since it works via a different mechanism, there's also potential for combination therapies and some of these things, which may, again, start to match the effectiveness of surgery on weight loss, on health outcomes, on reducing the risk of death from these complications without all the risks that uh, come with undergoing a, you know, major abdominal surgical procedure. So that's kind of my summary of, you know, where the history of this stuff came from, where it is right now, what we're trying to do about it and kind of where it's going in the future. And uh, maybe you guys can help us by not stigmatizing this stuff. Interestingly, this other paper that we shared called Anti-Obesity Drug Discovery Advances and Challenges, this is by Timo Mueller. Uh, This was published last week in the Nature Reviews Drug Discovery. I just, uh, I looked at this the other day, the actual like table of all of the anti-obesity drugs that we've had over the years. And like, like the first one that came out in the thirties was DNP, right? Yikes. And that's this yeah. mitochondrial uncoupler. So effectively you're more, less efficient at creating the energy that all of your cells use. And the side effects are hyperthermia, tachycardia, fever, tachypnea. So rapid breathing rate and death, right? People still use that stuff in the bodybuilding world and die from yes, it all the time. But there's no evidence. Years. There's no <laughs> controlled data on this long-term because yeah. of the risk. Right. Yeah, and so you, and you have all these other things, methamphetamine, uh, you know, subutramine, uh, all these things that were like developed in the 50s, 40s, 60s or whatever, no data. And the data that does exist shows relatively modest, like subutramine, which is this beta two agonist, right, uh, has a small weight loss advantage. So people lost like 1.7% compared to uh, the gain of 0.7% in the placebo. Well, so that's, compare- that's what's interesting just to, just to briefly interrupt is that's, what's interesting about these older ones is that you look at the mechanisms of how they all work and they're all targeting the energy expenditure side of the equation, which we've talked yes. about at length as like not the move in this both, both when it came to Dr. Ponzer's podcast and when it comes to medical treatment, targeting, just forcing people to burn more energy does not, it doesn't really no. work. Whereas when we flip this and we're targeting energy intake with these drugs that hit the brain affect satiety, we yes. see massive success <laughs> with this so far. Yeah. So when you compare that to the GLP-1 agonists, loraglutide, semaglutide, so semaglutide over a year, the average weight loss in these folks was 14.9% compared to placebo. With, with some, with some much more and a, and a few much less, of course. Yeah, that's the spectrum, average, right? But so, yeah, but that's a pretty big, big response. With a, mu- a much better side effect profile. Um, and so, <laughs> yeah, all die. of these, yeah, well, right. So in all of these drugs that are currently FDA approved for weight loss, all, like you said, target the area in the brain, uh, uh, lateral hypothalamus and talk and effectively, you know, regulate appetite and satiety in a, in a way that allows people to be successful. So effectively you're giving people the tools that maybe they didn't get dealt originally, either genetics, environment, et cetera, for them to be successful. And this even happens for Orlistat. Orlistat is a lipase, a pancreatic lipase inhibitor. The idea was, all right, well, if you can't break down the fat that you eat in the diet, you'll just poop it out. And so because you're not absorbing it, energy intake is going to go down. And yes, that does happen as one of the side effects is like explosive diarrhea, which is not great for those who get that. But the actual long-term mechanism that just recently recognizes that it also affects that hunger center, uh, if you will, which is a gross reduction in the complexity of hunger and appetite, but in the brain and they all, so they all work at the same, at the same level. And so if you're thinking about like, how would you manage weight loss? in an individual who would benefit from weight loss. Again, focusing on burning more calories than you eat. While true, that's not the behavior change that you're looking for. What you're trying to do is set this person up via environmental changes, 
different resources to shape their automatic behaviors because a lot of these eating and food seeking behaviors are automatic based on your environment, what you have access to, knowledge, etc. You want to change all that in a way so that their default behavior is to eat a health promoting dietary pattern. And if you can't do that just with lifestyle change alone, so nutritional sort of interventions, exercise, uh, stuff like that, then, you know, medications may be an option. Medications and surgery may be an option. And, and at no point does lifestyle like go out the, go out of, out of the window. It's not like the bariatric surgeons are like, ah, exercise is bullshit. Like you don't need to do that. They're pumping it too, you know? Yep. So yep. just depends on what people need. All right. The last one, and I just included this because this is like my pet, this is my pet baby. Like every few years, a new study comes out on ACE inhibitors. These are antihypertensive medications. Um, they all end in LIL, so lisinopril, or ill rather, not just LIL, but lisinopril, captopril, et cetera. They all, you know, uh, that that's the, uh, uh, the drug sort of category. And, uh, you know, uh, there was this base two study that came out a little bit ago, well, t- oh, probably 10 years ago now that showed maybe people on uh, ACE inhibitors gained more lower body, lean body mass compared to those taking a placebo uh, with response to resistance training. Maybe they got a little stronger. Now, the replication study kind of fell flat on its face and Austin was like, yeah, dude, whatever, this is stupid. And I'm like, hey, man, but yeah, but maybe because <laughs> I was like BRB finding <laughs> ACE inhibitors. But this new study by Nazarzadeh just came out, showed uh, that if you lowered blood pressure uh, in folks, that it reduced their risk of type 2 diabetes, especially if they were taking ACE inhibitors versus if they were taking other uh, potential blood pressure and lowering medications like beta blockers actually increase the risk, whereas calcium channel blockers, which is another class of blood pressure lowering medications, had real no effect on the risk at all. And so I was like, see, is there anything that ACE inhibitors can't do? (laughs) And he goes, keep clinging to that theory, bro. So (laughs) I just wanted to bring this up because uh, one, that's like my little pet kind of, you know, my pet medication if I have one. Uh, But also that like we are still learning things about the human body that are fascinating. Like I sent this to you and you're like, huh, that's interesting. I wonder what the mechanism is. Exactly. That's the thing is with the lowering, like, as far as beta blockers potentially increasing risk or, you know, these, this specific kind of diuretics potentially increasing risk, like, yes, I can think of ways that that would happen as far as increasing risk of uh, developing diabetes, ACE inhibitors to lower it. No idea. <laughs> yeah. But that, and, but it's so, and then the, the, the major point that I wanted to bring up is we take the clinical outcome data far more seriously than the mechanistic data. And so even if we don't know the underlying mechanism of why something works, if there's robust data showing a relationship, we feel much better in general, like either supporting a claim, making a claim, using that to influence treatment options. Yeah, we can um, figure out how later. Yeah, the how is much less important. But people right now, particularly in the exercise and fitness world, focus on the mechanisms first, even though there's no either no clinical data to support that or the clinical data that exists shows no relationship. These are the people claiming vitamin C, vitamin D, eat all the liver, like what, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, so I'm just like, let's focus less on the mechanism and more on the clinical data first. Um, You know, if if we had to pick, like the thing that's gonna make, shape my practice more is the clinical data. The mechanisms are cool and they generate hypotheses, which are great to test later on. But if we happen to stumble upon some clinical data that like is pretty robust and, and is repeatable and stuff like that, I'm kind of like, 
cool. I, I, I don't know that I care about the mechanism outside of like a perverse interest in like human physiology. Yeah, I agree. I think one of the most common and egregious and frustrating places where we run across this is when talking with people generally who I could categorize as just like being skeptics of the entire idea that like blood lipids and blood cholesterol plays a role in the development of uh, cardiovascular disease, heart disease risk. And the most typical example of where this happens is they will claim that polyunsaturated fats in the diet, which can come from certain kinds of foods like fish, like nuts, walnuts can come from um, other plant sources like that can also come from, you know, canola oil, rapeseed oil, other kinds of quote unquote vegetable oils um, can contain these polyunsaturated fatty acids. And so what a lot of times these individuals do is they will um, find mechanistic studies like either things that might be in a Petri dish or things that uh, tease out kind of biochemical pathways and say, I found a way that this particular fatty acid could contribute theoretically to inflammation in the body. And therefore you shouldn't consume these things. Or they'll find rodent studies in rats and say, I found a study that showed that these things cause, you know, make, make mice more likely to gain weight. And therefore you shouldn't eat uh, these foods as a human. And then they set aside or ignore or blind themselves to all of the existing human evidence, as you call it, clinical uh, uh, data, where these very things have been studied in humans and have not only not shown any of those effects that you might predict based on a particular mechanism or a rat study, but rather show the opposite. It might show that individuals have lower risk of developing uh, obesity or lower risk of developing uh, cardiovascular disease, heart disease, lower rates of inflammation or no effect on inflammation whatsoever. And it is just so bizarre and very frustrating to have some of these conversations where you have large amounts of data, decades of data, for example, on the substitution of polyunsaturated fats uh, in the diet for high intakes of animal-derived saturated fatty acids, generating improvements in cardiovascular risk, heart disease risk, blood cholesterol, things like that, like decades of research on this. And you have somebody who says, but here's a possible mechanism that it could do the opposite. So therefore nobody should yeah, consume them. Right. just ignoring all the actual human outcome evidence. So this comes up all the time. And if anybody who is a glutton for punishment, as, as I apparently am, there's one of, uh, one of the guys uh, who we follow on, on Twitter, his name is Nick Hebert. Um, he goes by like a, a weird name called the Nutrivore. Yeah. yeah he himself is probably even more of a glutton for punishment and wrote a massive article diving into every aspect of these uh, kind of claims around foods like polyunsaturated fats and vegetable oils and their effects on health, um, which if anybody's interested in the topic, that's really a, a pretty comprehensive resource looking at human outcome data, highly controlled trials, things like that um, for, for that particular topic. And then just because I think it's worth people knowing about um, this, this, guy who seems to be quite a character name goes by the name liver king on on instagram which i don't say this to drive people to to go buy into his stuff because yeah, he is he did it. ridiculous yeah. but um he i can see how he's generating his following he posts just absolutely absurd stuff uh but he made uh, alan thrall actually sent me a clip where he was making a bunch of claims about dietary cholesterol and dietary fats and cholesterol and uh and um sorry uh heart disease risk and I was just shocked because every single sentence that came out of his mouth was 
verifiably false <laughs> based yes. on existing evidence. And so I said, you know, all right, I'm going to do this. And I put up a giant uh, a thread of stories, basically tackling not only every claim, but providing the original reference data that would refute it as well as links and citations. Um, I won't necessarily go through all of the claims and stuff here. They're very typical, uh, you know, paleo primal high fat, low carb, ignoring, you know, the effects of these things on heart disease kind of tropes. He trotted out almost every classic trope that you see from those folks. Um, and so for anybody who's interested in that, I actually saved them in a story highlight on my, uh, on my Instagram page. So, um, for anybody who's interested in that topic, uh, check that out. Look at that. Mr. Social media, Dr. Social media. Once That's in a impressive. while, like Once my quarterly, quarterly Q and a, when I have nothing else to do. <laughs> That's right. Yes. I, I think people mistake being a contrarian for a critical thinker. Like people like, Oh wow. This is a completely unknown relationship and everyone else got it wrong. Like the contrarian view. People love that. It's exciting. Gets people going and they mistake that for somebody who's actually done the critical thinking based on existing literature, evidence, science, where it is available. If you want to be a contrarian and be completely free from scrutiny to the extent that somebody could really like nail you down, pick a topic where there's no evidence that exists. Yeah, then you can say whatever you want. You could just make up whatever and your view is as good as an expert's (laughs) because there's no evidence. I do remember reading one thread. I forget where I found this, but uh, it was a guy who was previously big into, uh, it was probably like Q or some other kind of conspiracy theory thing. And he oh, you know, un- unplugged himself from this and like realized what it was. And he was doing just kind of like an ask me anything sort of thing where it was like, hey, here's, this is what I've been through. And people were asking him questions. And and what you said there kind of rings true because his his thing was, the buying into some of the conspiracy theories and stuff like that, similar to a lot of, you know, there's a big overlap with the contrarian kind of uh, mindset. He said, quote, it feels like critical thinking. And that's what mattered <laughs> to them. Sure. It feels like critical thinking. And so it was just kind of assumed to be the case that, you know, I've, I've got this figured out. And nobody else got this figured out. So it's kind of interesting how human psychology, you know, as we've said many times before and reference people to, Mr. McCraney's You Are Not So Smart podcast. Uh, you are, in fact, not <laughs> very smart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is fine. Yeah. We are. That's, right. that's, yeah. that's why we it rely on evidence. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's exactly. It's like the lazy way out. It's like, well, I can't be uniquely responsible, independently responsible for like reams of data. So fortunately, there's a compendium of this online that I can like <laughs> reference at a moment's notice. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, that's a wrap on episode 162. Uh, strength and health evidence update with Dr. Austin Baraki. Thank you so much for listening to the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Again, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Before you go anywhere, leave us a five-star rating and review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness, grow our audience. We're shooting for 2 million downloads. I want 2 million downloads in 2022 or 2021. It's probably not going to happen. We're 1.87 something right now. And so unless we like go viral. Just need to add more downloads. Well, we need to add an extra month. Honestly, the Gregorian calendar is bullshit. So if we just extend the calendar a little bit, like I think we'll make it. But next year, 2022, we're definitely going over two mil. So anyway, thank you so much for joining us. Austin, anything else you want to sign off with? Nothing else. We're good. All right. See you guys later. Peace.